Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please join me now by turning to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 1. This morning we are beginning a new series through through the book of Mark, a new study through the book of Mark, which we are calling This Changes Everything. Now what do I mean by this changes everything? Well, here's what I mean. Reading the Gospels brings us face to face with Jesus who changed everything. Changed everything? Is that right, Matt? Are you just being a little bit preacher dramatic? Well, I don't think so. Here's a perspective to help illustrate the magnitude of Jesus' life. History is divided into two parts. The days before Jesus and the days after Jesus. Listen. There has only been one person who has flipped the world upside down, who has divided the days. Listen, we are 2,000 years past the life, death, and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which puts us somewhere around 65 generations removed. And we are still testifying to how he changed our life. But here's something else astounding. Not only are we some 65 generations removed, but we are 6,700 miles away from where these events took place. In other words, we are testifying to having been changed by someone who spoke a different language had a different skin tone than us, and lived on an entirely different continent than us. So the question is, how and why? Well, the reason is because he is still alive. The reason is because Jesus is still alive. And here's what Mark's going going to do for us. Mark is going to introduce us to Jesus. That's right. He's going to introduce us to Jesus. He's not simply going to tell us about Jesus. This isn't story hour for the gospel of Mark, where everybody sort of, Mark says, Hey, grandchildren. Come near to me and find your cozy and comfortable seats. Lean back, get comfortable while Grandpa Mark tells you a story about the life and ministry of Jesus. No, no, no. This this is much more profound than that. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark is introducing us to Jesus. Through the very words that we will read and study in Mark's gospel, we will encounter the one who changed everything. We won't just hear about him like we hear about the news and we hear about stories about people who have died in the history books. No, no, no. We are going to be introduced to him. Introduced to the one who changed everything. 
Listen to these words from Sinclair Ferguson. These words that should rattle you, lift you up and inspire you, create all to come across your eyelids. Sinclair Ferguson says this. On these pages, you will find the living Christ. And you will see him more fully and more clearly than if he stood before you, before your very eyes. If you have a Bible, hold it up for me. Hold it up like this. Even if it's on your phone, hold it up. Let's, let me just read this again. On these pages, you will find the living Christ. And you will see him more fully and more clearly than if he stood before you, before your very eyes. You see what Sinclair Ferguson's saying. If Jesus, in bodily form, walked into our assembly this morning, we wouldn't see him more fully and more clearly than we do when we study him and see him in the pages of Scripture. You see what I'm saying? Mark's going to introduce us to Jesus. <laughs> so here's a question. Did you dress for the occasion? Did you realize that you were going to be introduced to someone who changed the world? Did you realize that was going down this morning? And it, had you have known, would you have prepared something? Well, that's the point, the point of this morning's text. The title of this morning's message is Prepare Your Heart. Prepare Your Heart. And the point of this passage is this. Prepare your heart to see and savor the Savior. Prepare your heart to see and savor the Savior. So now if you would, please join me by turning your attention to what is undoubtedly the best part of this morning's message, and that is the reading of God's holy, infallible, authoritative, inspired word, starting in Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's take a second and pray, asking for the Lord's help in my preaching 
in our hearing and in our applying of his word. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you so much for your word. Oh, this is just breathtaking that we get to have a copy of your word in our laps and and encounter Jesus. And so, Lord, realizing that intellectually, we just now come and ask that you please open our eyes, the eyes of our heart, the eyes of our mind, the eyes of our affections to behold wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first point this morning is prepare for good news. Verse 1. Prepare for good news. Now on Friday, as I was preparing this message, and actually this point in particular, I spoke with a friend whose mom is, 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 is battling cancer. And I was getting an update from him because I knew that the day before, his mom was having a scan. She said about a five-year battle with cancer, and she was going to have a scan the day before because she's having some more complications, increased complications with cancer. And, and on Thursday, they were going to have a scan to determine whether or not that cancer had spread to other parts of her body that was sort of impacting sort of the negative medical experiences that she was having. As I spoke to him on Friday, though, he said, Matt, there's no need for a scan. The doctor said that it cannot be treated. There was not even a need for the scan. It cannot be treated. But they were going to give her chemotherapy just to make her as comfortable as possible. And in my mind, as he was talking, because I've been immersed in this text all week, I had these words from Mark 1, right at the tip of my tongue and right at the forefront of my mind. In the beginning of the gospel. And I thought, yes, Lord, thank you so much that even on our darkest days, you have brought good news. Do you know who else needed good news? The original readers of Mark's book. Historians say that the original readers of Mark's book were most likely people in Rome around A.D. 64. And what significant event happens to Christians in A.D. 64? Remember, it was, it was Nero. The, the great persecution, the first great persecution against the church in A.D. 64, where Nero, who started a fire in Rome, but didn't want to take the blame for it, put it on the, put it on the Christians, and as a result, there was a a great persecution against all the believers, and many of them died as a result. Now, if you're wondering how Mark is writing an eyewitness account of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus when he actually wasn't present for the life and ministry of Jesus, at least walking alongside him, the answer is because it was the Apostle Peter who had relayed to Mark the events of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And the book of Mark starts out where all good stories start out. Mark says in Mark 1, the beginning. <laughs> the beginning of what? The beginning of the gospel, Mark says. Now, 
I think it's quite revealing and should be informative to us, should be teaching us this morning that the first words which Mark records in his book are not a series of, of social actions at the hands of the Christians, not a series of social justices, not a series of social works by the Christians. No, his first words are in the beginning of the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel, or otherwise known as the good news, is first and foremost a message. A message of all that God has done to redeem us back to Him. All that God has done to save us from our sins, to reconcile us back to Him. The gospel is a message that grounds us in truth, protects us from error, preserves us in trial, and converts us to Christ. The gospel is our life, my Christian friend. But if the gospel is just a message, then why didn't God just send a text message? From heaven to earth. Why didn't God just inspire an angel to write a book and to sort of throw it long distance from heaven to land on earth? Well, the reason is because the gospel is not only a message, it is an eyewitness account of the life and ministry of the historic person of Jesus Christ. All that he was. And all that he did to reconcile us to a holy God. Isn't that what Mark says next? He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This gospel of salvation is only the message of salvation because of what the person of Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. What he accomplished on our behalf. So who is Jesus Christ? Well, Mark is going to tell us all about him over the next 15 chapters. Mark's going to introduce us to him over the next 15 chapters so that we might see and savor the Savior. But he wants us to know something right from the opening of his book, right from the opening words of his book. He wants us to know something about Jesus Christ. He says... In the beginning, or he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is loading this first sentence up with so many deep and profound realities. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now what he's doing here is he's helping us understand right from the outset a conclusion that a Gentile is going to come to at the very end of the book of Mark. In fact... He says this in Mark 15, when he's dying on the cross. Centurion, verse 39, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, and he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. You see, we have bookend titles of who Jesus is. Mark, Mark is wanting us to see right from the outset the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He wants us to see right from the opening pages that Jesus Christ is not merely a man. 
He is something more than a man. He is fully man and fully God. Whoa. I mean, just trying to capture, get our mind around this reality of the two natures of Jesus Christ. Fully man, fully God. Now, the people of Israel were often called the Son of God in the Old Testament. For example, in Hosea, an Old Testament book, chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, God says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And then in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, it says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So in other words, Israel's being called the Son of God is serving as a type or a foreshadowing of Christ to come. Pointing forward to one who is to come. But Israel, with their title as the Son of God, failed. They failed to fulfill their role as God's Son frequently because of their disbelief, because of their unbelief, because of their sin. Because of their sin, their disobedience to God. That's why in Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet writing during the days of the northern kingdom's exile in anticipation of the southern kingdom's exile as a result of all of their disobedience. He's writing in Isaiah chapter 9 that God is going to do a future work and send a Savior. God is going to do a future work and send a Savior. He's going to rescue His people from their bondage of slavery. Original readers anticipating that to be their slavery from in their exile, but now we see it on this side of the cross, it was ultimately a pointing to our slavery to sin. That God is going to send a future Savior. In Isaiah chapter 9, he says this, Not even on this side of the cross, on that side of the cross. He says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Verse 6, For unto us, a child is born, and unto us a son is given. I hope your mind is exploding, just connecting the dots from Old Testament and New Testament realities. God's son, Jesus Christ, this is what Mark's saying right from the outset. He didn't fail. You know, Israel referred to as God's son. They failed. They couldn't save us. God's son, Jesus Christ, did not fail. He fulfilled his title as the son of God perfectly, which means that he perfectly obeyed the law of God at every moment and millisecond in his life. And the reason that that is good news, the reason that Jesus did that is good news is because he lived his life for you and he lived his life for me he had nothing to prove he was already God's son who was in perfect union perfect fellowship with both the father and the spirit throughout all of eternity but because we had no chance 
to have a restored relationship with God because of our sin and our inability to atone for our own sins, to make up for our own sins, to be right with God, to bridge the chasm that separates an unholy people from a holy God. Because of that, Jesus lived his life for us. He lived his life for you. He lived his life for me. And because he lived his life perfectly, he could then go to the cross and die as a substitute in our place for our sins. Because if I go to the cross and I die for you, it serves you no good. Because I'm a sinner. And that's been the case for every sinner who's existed since Adam and Eve. No one could save us from our sins. Rise up nation, they couldn't do it. Rise up prophet, they couldn't do it. Rise up king, they couldn't do it. But Jesus, who is fully God, fully man, steps out of heaven, lives the perfect life, and dies in our place on the cross to absorb the penalty and the wrath, the judgment that we deserve. As a result of our sin. So friend. Prepare your heart. For the good news. Of the gospel. Prepare your heart for the good news of the gospel. Gospel that we're going to see unfolded from Mark 1. All the way through Mark 15. But Mark says that's not the only thing that we need to prepare for. In our next point, the Lord wants us to prepare to change. Which is our second point, prepare to change. Verses 2 to 6. When you think of a royal brigade, what picture comes to your mind? I have a a lot of things that come to my mind when I think of a royal brigade. I I think of red carpets being rolled out. I think of miles of fanfare lining the sides of the streets. I think of highly decorated officers standing guard. I think of important people being present. I think of trumpets and drums. Now, those are the images that come to our mind when we think about earthly rulers Wouldn't you expect for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to have an entry that is exponentially greater than this? But when Jesus arrives on the scene, does he receive any of that traditional welcome? Does he have any of that traditional pomp? Mark tells us that Not only is this typical brigade missing from Jesus' entry, (laughs) but the person preparing his way is someone that you couldn't have imagined in your wildest dreams. In fact, the man leading the way for Jesus, the man preparing the way for Jesus, is unlike anyone you've ever met in your entire life. 
Scroll, scroll the Rolodex in your mind of all the people you've met in your life. This man preparing the way for the Lord Jesus is unlike any man you've ever met in your life. How so? <laughs> well, Mark tells us that John the Baptist was different in his mission and in his clothing and diet. First, let's take a second to consider his mission. After Mark tells us about Jesus, introduces us to Jesus in verse 1, he abruptly tells us about John the Baptist starting in verse 2. And with his Bible open, Mark points to a passage from the prophet Isaiah again, who lived 700 years before. And he says, Mark says, you see these, that prophecy 700 years ago? John the Baptist fulfills that prophecy. As we mentioned a couple of times this morning, Isaiah lived during the days of Israel's exile where God's people were forced to leave their land as a result of disobedience. But the Lord, as he would do because he's kind and compassionate, he would raise up prophets to speak promises of comfort to his people. And in Isaiah chapter 40, he declared this promise that we find in Mark chapter 1 verse 2. A promise... That from the wilderness would come a voice crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now, does that sound like John the Baptist? Well, let's see what Mark says in verses 4 to 5. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness... Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So what is the wilderness? Why is John out in the wilderness instead of in town baptizing where all the people are? Well, this again takes us back to our Old Testament takes us back to the Old Testament where God's people experience both their highest and their lowest moments in the exact same event in the Old Testament. That is the event of the Exodus. The highest moment of the Old Testament comes in the Exodus when God rescues his people from their 400 years of slavery in the land of Egypt. He rescues them, he delivers them, he protects them, he preserves them, he saves them. That's the highest moment, the climactic moment in the Old Testament. But that same event also contains the lowest moment in the Old Testament. It is the moment following God's rescue of his people when they are making their way to the promised land and they continue to disobey. They continue to have unbelief. Though God has proved himself time and time again, they continue to disobey. And they are left to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. You remember that. The people of God were left to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Years. The wilderness was the place and the occasion of Israel's greatest failure. It was a sore spot in their history. Fast forward a thousand years, a thousand plus years, 
that John the Baptist wants the people to know that not much has changed. Technology has advanced, no doubt, in the 1,400 years since the Exodus. Language has developed. People's houses might be bigger. More establishments are laid down. But John the Baptist says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Not much has changed, people. Not much has changed. We are still the same rebellious and sinful people in need of God's mercy and, and God's grace. So John the Baptist in the wilderness stands in the Jordan and he calls to people to repent. He calls the people to turn from their sin and, and be baptized, which signifies the forgiveness of sin. John is preparing the people's hearts to receive the good news of the Savior. John's job is to prepare the people's hearts to receive the good news of the Savior. His job was to break up the fallow ground that had been hardened by sin and disobedience to God. His, his ministry was like that of a farmer in the spring, who takes his tiller out to the garden after a winter of hardening of the soil, and takes his tiller, tiller out to the garden, and he breaks up the ground in order to sow seeds for growth. Mark says in verse 5 that despite John's hard message, there was an amazing response. In verse 5 it says, As all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were being baptized, confessing their sins. Now, as we picture this line of people, a beautiful picture indeed. As we picture this line of people in position to get their hearts right with God, I can't help but imagine that there might be someone or there might be people here this morning who need to get their heart right with God. Listen. What's amazing about John's message is that it was actually a message to the people of God. He's calling for the people of God to repent, to get their hearts right, to get their hearts ready for the Savior, for the one who was to come. So listen, friends, as we imagine that great multitude, that great line of people coming out to the River Jordan I just can't help but think maybe there's somebody or some people here this morning who needs to get their heart right with God. What better time to prepare room in your heart for Jesus than the Christmas season? If you've allowed sin to affect your relationship with God in any way, would you please respond to this message from, from John the Baptist to repent, to turn from your sin, to get your heart right with God, to, if you, if you will, to use sort of created language, to prepare Jesus' room in your heart. Whatever is taking the place, whatever sin you've allowed to take the throne in your heart, my Christian friend, whatever sin you've allowed to occupy your mind, whatever sin you've given yourself to, 
Repent, which means to rip it out of that throne. It doesn't deserve to be there. It's not worthy to be there. Only one person is worthy to be there, and that's not your sin. Rip it out of that throne and replace Jesus on that throne, which means to obey him, get right with him, repent. And if you're someone here this morning who has never trusted in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, I invite you to do that this morning. If he's prompting you in this moment to trust him, and your job is to respond by turning to him by faith and trusting in him alone for the forgiveness of sins. Well, now that Mark's told us about John the Baptist's message in the wilderness, he wants us to show, he wants to show us John's diet and clothing. Now listen. <laughs> Though John the Baptist prepared the way for the Son of God, he is not preparing dinner at my house. Listen. Mark says in verse 6, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now why is... John the Baptist dressing and dieting like this. It's hard for us to understand this far removed from the Old Testament life. But it was actually consistent with the other prophets who were proclaiming a message of, 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 of a future Savior. It's consistent with, with the prophets who cried out from the wilderness. Prophets like Elijah and Elisha. Well, that takes us to our third and final point this morning, which is prepare for his great glory. Prepare for his great glory. Verses 7 and 8. In this last section, as we're studying this morning, John's message to us is, you ain't seen nothing yet. Let me tell you this. Let me tell you about a time from a trip that my mom and dad took my sisters and I on when I was a kid. A story that perfectly illustrates John's point this morning. Mom and dad took us to the Grand Canyon, and as we got out of the car after days of driving, and we walked to the edge of the 277 mile wide and or mile long and 18 mile wide hole in the ground that people travel from all over the world to see I responded like this Dad look at that chipmunk that was my first response after getting out of the car from like 20 plus hours of driving, stopping at hotels, feeding me, after clothing me, after buying me Christmas presents, after buying my way to the Grand Canyon, after all of this labor, walking up to this great breadth and length of a hole in the ground. I say, Dad, look at that chipmunk. And my dad, the best I can remember, he said something like, Son, we did not come all the way here to look at a chipmunk. Well, friends, John the Baptist is saying to these 
to these crowds. Someone greater than the Grand Canyon is coming. Don't get distracted by a chipmunk. Don't get distracted by lesser glories. He's doing what the best preachers do. And that is not attract attention to himself. And that's hard work wearing camel skins and a leather belt and eating locusts. He's not attracting attention to himself. He's casting the attention to Christ. The one who is to come. The one that he's preparing the way for. In verse 7 he says this. After me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. A modern translation of that verse might be the shoes that I'm not worthy to shine. After me comes one whose shoes I'm not even worthy to shine. Friends, John's appeal to the crowd was don't get distracted by lesser glories. John's eyes of faith were so filled with the glory of Jesus that he feared any intrusion from a lesser glory seeking to crowd out room in his heart that Jesus alone deserves. So friends, let me, allow me to ask you this question. Have you allowed any lesser glory to creep into your life, to intrude into your life, to take the attention, to take the worship, to take the devotion that Christ alone deserves? Are you standing at the reading of the Gospel of Mark, standing at the very presence of Jesus through the preaching of His Word, standing at the great awesome, mighty presence of Jesus and distracted by a chipmunk, by a lesser glory? Is there any intrusion in your life that has stolen the attention that Christ alone deserves in your life? Now, what aspect of Jesus' glory captured John's heart in this section? There's so much glory in the person of Jesus Christ. What aspect of his glory captured John's heart in this text? In verse 8, he tells us what aspect of his glory captured his heart. He says this. He says this to the crowds who are amazed at him, no doubt. Amazed at his message. Amazed at his platform. Amazed at his attention. Amazed at the crowds. He says, I have baptized you with water. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now what he's saying is that his baptism was a sign of spiritual cleansing. But the one who was to come is actually going to give you spiritual cleansing. John's is a sign of something to come. And Jesus' is the reality, the fulfillment of that sign. The actual cleansing. When someone repents of their sins and places their faith in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of their sins, Jesus sends the Spirit who plunges into their life and applies the benefits of the gospel to them, applies the benefits of the forgiveness of sins, the cleansing, the, the feeling that you've just been washed white. 
that you've just, all the dark stains of your sin have just been removed. You know that feeling? Do you remember that feeling when it first happened to you? Who did that? That was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That was the Spirit plunging into your life, applying the benefits of a cleansed life. You know, when you go under the waters in baptism, you come back up and you celebrate. But though you feel cleaner on the outside, you don't feel cleaner on the inside. What can make you feel cleaner on the inside? It is only Christ who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That's what John's saying. You come out here and get baptized by me, but don't be amazed at me. All I can do is give you a bath. One to come is going to plunge you, plunge into your soul, cleanse you from unrighteousness, all the guilt, all the sin, all the condemnation that lives at the forefront of your mind, that leads your life into despair. All of that, he's going to plunge, he's going to cleanse you. The Spirit comes and applies that glorious benefit. He applies the purity of the righteousness of Christ, the robe of his righteousness being wrapped around the believer. John was amazed by what was to come. He was amazed. Wouldn't you agree? He was amazed by what was to come. He was preparing his heart to encounter a person who was yet to come. He gave this much of his heart to someone who had not even stepped on the scene yet. And listen, listen to this. As great as John the Baptist was, and Jesus said he was the greatest son of man. He was the greatest of children born of man. As great as John the Baptist was, no doubt, on my short list of heroes that I, I am so excited to meet in heaven. As great as he was, Jesus says this about you and about me. In Matthew eleven eleven, he says, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. I didn't hear a single awe. That should take your breath away. Let me try this again. As great as John the Baptist was, then he was indeed great. His eyes are filled with the glory of the one to come. He's in anticipation and excitement of the baptism of the Spirit that's going to cleanse of unrighteousness, make us right with God. Jesus says, you are greater than John the Baptist. Amen. Amen. Why? Why? How? How is this possible? How are we greater than the greatest prophet? The reason is because we live on this side of the cross. We live on this side of the cross. We see in full what John the Baptist only saw in part. He only saw in part what you and I have the full pleasure of seeing in full. That is that God sent a Savior, a humble servant who lived in my place, who walked the dusty earth, who died 
An undeserving death on the cross. And on the cross, he's not just dying a man's death. He's absorbing in his body the judgment and the wrath of God that I deserve. So what God's doing is he's taking the anger that Isaiah's talking about. You remember this? Look at this. Look at this. Isaiah chapter 12 from our call to worship. Just connecting in this very moment. In this very moment. 12.1, you will say, in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. How did his anger turn away? Because his attention turned away. He turned his anger out on his son. He poured out all his anger upon the son of God. And you know what? That The pleasure, the joy, the love that he had for the son, he turned that to me and you. He gave us the love that he has for his own son. And he gave him my sin and the judgment that I deserve as a result of my sin. You see that? We see it in full. John John the Baptist couldn't even imagine that God would do something that glorious, that God once and for all would pay for all of our sins, would deal with our sins All at once. That there, you look into the cup, you look into your cup of sin. Every time you sin, you imagine you drip another drop of sin in that cup. And you imagine on the last day, God's going to hold that cup up. And he's going to recount. He's going to pour all your sins out. He's going to recount that in the scale of balances. Your good works, here's your sin. So sorry, your sin weighs too much. 100 out of 100 people get that judgment. But when Christ dies for us, what we see, what John couldn't have even imagined, that's why we're greater than him, what we see is that Jesus said, Father, I'll take that cup. Give me that cup. And he takes the cup that's full of my sin, full of your sin, full of our sin, and he drinks it down to the very last drop. There's nothing left in the cup. There's no judgment, no sin, no unrighteousness left. He drank it all down. So when we come to the judgment day and we see the Father, Father, don't remember my sins. What sins, son? What sins, daughter? I know I sinned. I remember this, and I remember this, and I did this, and it's grieved me for my whole life. I can't believe I did that. And he says, look in the cup. There's nothing in there. How is this possible? John the Baptist is in heaven. Like, I couldn't have even imagined that, that God would do that, that God would do that. Friends, he did that. He did that for me, and he did that for you. That is just, that's really something. That's really something. (laughs) Throughout this whole series of Mark, of seeing and savoring the Savior, we're going to have 60 opportunities to see and savor the Savior as Mark takes us by the hand and introduces us to the life and ministry of Jesus. So friend, would you please join me in preparing your heart to meet him and to walk with him and be changed by him through every verse and every chapter of this glorious study. Let's pray. Lord, As as you said we would say, 
in prophetic words 2,700 years ago, you knew that on this day we would say this from Isaiah chapter 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you are angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. Lord, thank you so much that you are our salvation. Where else will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. In Jesus' name.